Did you know the Capital Ideas Podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Two of my FT colleagues have been reporting on a corner of the credit market that's starting to worry regulators. Hello, I'm Colby Smith. I write for Alphaville. Hello, my name is Joe Renison. I'm a reporter on the markets desk at the Financial Times. What Colby and Joe have been looking at is something called a leveraged loan. And in the past few years, investors have spent a ton of money to get their hands on these loans. Actually, they've spent about $1.2 trillion. Hello and welcome to Behind the Money. I'm Amy Keene, and this week on the podcast, Colby and Joe are going to tell us how these loans work, why certain investors find buying these loans so attractive, and why some regulators say the leveraged loan market could have significant risk to the financial system. Joe, before the financial crisis, if I was a hedge fund manager or a pension fund manager with a pretty big risk appetite, what kind of assets would I be investing in? It's a good question. So obviously it varies from person to person, but in broad brushstrokes, Before the financial crisis, interest rates were higher. The policy rate set by the Federal Reserve was higher. Uh, It dipped after the 2000-2001 tech bubble, but then it rose again. And, and, you know, going into the financial crisis, we were at rates of sort of 5-6%, something like that. And as a result, you know, as an investor, you could earn a pretty decent yield, a pretty decent return from just investing in pretty safe everyday government bonds or uh, things that didn't carry an awful lot of risk. Uh, After the crisis, that changed with the Federal Reserve pushing interest rates down to uh, historic lows. The FOMC has responded aggressively to the weaker outlook for economic activity, having reduced its target for the federal funds rate by 225 basis points since last summer. And holding them there uh, for an extended period of time, investors could no longer get a decent return from just investing in things like treasuries, uh, run-of-the-mill investments. And as a result, they had to kind of go out and look for other things to invest in. It pushed money into stock markets, it pushed money into corporate bond markets, and it also pushed money into leveraged loan markets. Leveraged loans are typically loans to riskier companies. They're often already fairly indebted, often to fund private equity buyouts. And as a result, investors expect to get a little bit of a higher return from lending or extending credit to these companies. So what is a leveraged loan? How does it work? When thinking about leveraged loans, it's probably easier to actually think of it like any other loan. What is a popular loan that you might go and get from, say, a bank, maybe a mortgage or an auto loan? Exactly. Uh, And it's not dissimilar to how those work, at least in essence, it's not that dissimilar. When you go to a bank to get a mortgage, you are effectively using your house as collateral for them to extend you a line of credit in the form of cash. It's not that dissimilar. 
when you go and get a leveraged loan from a bank as a company, you are using that company as collateral for the bank to then extend you cash against that company. There are obviously all sorts of bells and whistles that come with that. Loan documents can vary from company to company to company to company, but fundamentally it is a loan secured by the company's assets. One thing that is a little bit different about a leveraged loan to, say, a mortgage, normally with a mortgage, you will, at least in the US, you'll get a fixed rate. So the interest rate that you pay on your mortgage is fixed from day one. With a leveraged loan, that's not the case. Typically, a leveraged loan has a floating rate of interest, which means it is floating above a typical benchmark interest rate. Let's, it's typically LIBOR, which means as LIBOR rises and falls, so does the rate of interest that a company is paying on its leveraged loan. Once the loan is issued, and or at least once the loan is agreed to between the bank and the company, the bank will then go to a group of investors that might be interested in buying that loan to gauge how interested, in fact, they are. If there is an awful lot of interest, there is usually some ability for the bank to improve the terms of the loan for the company. And if investors are not at all interested, there's usually some ability for the bank to make it more investor-friendly. If there's absolutely no interest, well, then the bank is a little bit stuck. They've agreed to underwrite a loan that they can't sell, and they then have to take it onto their own balance sheet. In other words, the banks act as a kind of administrator of the transaction. They agree to set up these loans to underwrite the loans for a company that's already fairly indebted. And while this is happening, the bank is also trying to sell that loan to an investor with a bigger appetite to carry the risk of loaning money to a company that might have trouble paying it back. These are investors like hedge funds and pension fund managers. Now, Joe, this this isn't quite how lending worked before the crisis, right? Yeah, that's that's another one of the things that has changed quite fundamentally since the financial crisis. So before the crisis, the market was much more focused on banks extending this credit uh, and banks would hold a lot of these loans on their balance sheet. You could just go to a bank and you could get that loan directly from them. Since financial crisis, banks uh, have pulled back an awful lot from holding this stuff on their own balance sheets. They are almost non-existent now as holders of leveraged loans. And so this stuff now goes out to investors. It gets sold on. It gets passed through, if you like. And so whilst the mechanism is, is, is fairly similar, the incentives involved are different. We're going to talk about those incentives in a minute. But can you give us an example? So if you're a Neiman Marcus or a PetSmart or an Anastasia Beverly Hills, or more likely the owner of those companies, so the big private equity firm, then you will negotiate a loan with the bank initially. You will uh, negotiate the terms and the documents that are going to cover that. And the bank will agree to underwrite that loan. So they'll guarantee that it gets done. Uh, so They're, they're going to guarantee to say, yes, you will be able to have access to, let's call it a $500 million loan. They're on the hook for it. But then the bank will go to a bunch of investors and say, look, we have this deal being done. We have this loan that we're going to create. We would like you to buy it. Uh, Would you like to buy it? How much would you like? And if there's an awful lot of appetite for it and the investors go, oh, yes, we would love to buy that, please. That sounds lovely. Then the bank will either sell it as is or they may even be able to tighten up the terms of that loan to the benefit of the company. What What do you mean by that? So they might be able to 
you know, make it even more borrower-friendly, loosen the lending standards a little bit further, possibly on price as well. They may be able to reduce the borrowing cost to the company because so many investors want to own that loan. And that's what you mean by how the incentives have changed. So if a bank has enough investor interest in a particular loan, they might loosen some of the terms of what's called a financial maintenance covenant with the company that they're lending to. I mean, the thing that's interesting about leveraged loans versus something you know like bonds is that the interest on the loans rise and fall with basically what the Fed is setting their benchmark interest rates at. So that's why leveraged loans were so attractive. So when you have that much demand kind of flowing into a market and you have so many people willing to snap up these deals and private equity firms have all the ability to say, you know, well, if you X bank don't want to go ahead and do this, you know, we have 10 more waiting in line. So the thing is, is that the balance was so tipped to the private equity side that they could really set the terms that they wanted and have enough buyers to accept those terms. And the thing is, is that as banks no longer hold these assets on their on their balance sheets, they have less incentive to, you know, really care so much about the lending standards, right? Because they're not eventually holding the bag when and if these things turn sour. So that was the big shift is when banks no longer kind of, that wasn't their their focus or their priority. And it was really investors. That's when, you know, they would say to these private equity sponsors in these negotiations, like, okay, I really want to do this deal. So in order to do this deal, the private equity sponsors would say, okay, you need to allow us to, you know, take these assets and move them into, um, you know, another unrestricted subsidiary or, you know, separate from the parent company or something like that. Or, you know, we need to be able to have higher leverage levels or to bring in and calculate these add backs, which are like cost savings, like theoretical cost savings. We can have higher leverage levels because, look, we're going to save X amount. And so some of those things got stretched pretty thin and banks were willing to accept it because they were no longer holding them on their balance sheets. In the market for leveraged loans, we're certainly seeing reach for yield and we're seeing a deterioration in underwriting standards. We are trying to ensure that underwriting standards move up and are higher to diminish risks. If the banks were issuing the leveraged loans, the Fed could really have a direct effect. It's a lot harder because so much of that comes from outside the regulated banks. How big a problem is that for our economy? This, this, is, this is the next area of potential systemic risk. With the size of the leveraged loans market has exploded in 2018 to surpass even that of high-yield bonds. And as these loans garnered popularity among investors in search of yield, the quality of investor protections deteriorated. So what is it that regulators are worried about? I mean, I think it's a few things. People do cite the growth of the market, but we've spoken to a lot of, you know, private equity people, but other also um, investors that say, you know, other markets grew in proportion as well. So it's not really necessarily the size, but people have mentioned that. 
the amount of leverage that a lot of these companies are holding is a concern as well. So LCD is with uh, S&P Global Markets Intelligence, and they say for a third of all loans issued in 2018, leverage levels crept up above six times. So that exceeds the guidance put out from other kind of federal organizations. And so leverage levels is obviously an issue. A third component is is just in the, the lending standards that we talked about. So if companies are able to get access to credit on easier and easier terms, there's the concern that if and when defaults start happening, when you know earnings aren't as robust as they were before, or we have some kind of recession, or any of those economic pressures start to build, that companies will have so few covenants, these maintenance covenants, that will trigger, you know, oh, there's a, there's a concern with this company. We need to talk about it. We need to restructure their debt. We need to, you know, deal with this debt issue. If we have none of those maintenance covenants, then by the time we actually get to the table and start negotiating some of these things, the company is going to be long far gone in terms of being able to recoup any of the losses. So the concern was that we've seen this rise in in Covlight is what they call it. So that's when you don't have these maintenance covenants. So people aren't getting to the table early enough. So there's this fear that if and when the default cycle comes that you'll see lower recovery rates. There was some emphasis on the systemic nature of this all systemic risk, meaning if things go sour with some of these loans, it could have far-reaching effects on the credit market and possibly the entire banking or financial system. You know, the Federal Reserve came out, the International Monetary Fund, uh, the Bank for International Settlements, all of these really big, important financial institutions came out and said, you know, this could potentially have systemic consequences, meaning that it could affect, you know, the banking system more broadly. People have poked holes in that kind of argument, saying, you know, it's too small of a market. This doesn't really necessarily look like, you know, the credit default swaps and all of the things that helped to bring about the last financial crisis. And banks aren't holding them on their balance sheets. And that's the key point, is that it's not banks that are holding the risks, it's private investors. Mm -hmm. Now, are these private investors, though, not investing things like pension money? Yeah, no, that's definitely a concern, but it's just not the same level of, quote unquote, this could take down the banks that we saw kind of in the lead up to the financial crisis. Right. So the fear is, while this might not trigger trigger the next financial crisis, it has the potential to worsen whatever that might be. I think that's reasonable. I. You know, given the fact that we're talking an awful lot here about how the market has weakened and how it has uh, raised eyebrows and caused concern and consternation among an awful lot of people, it's probably only fair to kind of point out the other side as well. And that's the, well, you know, a lot of PE firms will say that, uh, yeah, financial maintenance covenants aren't going to save you if you're a bad credit picker. If you lend money to a bad company that is going to default, it will default regardless of these financial maintenance covenants. That's probably a reasonably fair statement to come out with. Yes, financial maintenance covenants give you some kind of early warning sign, but they're not going to stop a company from defaulting. And actually, this idea that because a company isn't tripping financial maintenance covenants as it sort of gets into some trouble, it means it probably has a little bit more leeway to try and rescue itself. So an awful lot of ratings agencies say, well, yeah, if it default, if a company defaults, it will probably recover less for investors and they'll lose more money. But it might not actually default in the first place. We might see this much longer tail of companies not defaulting. And some of those may even sort of be able to save themselves. 
One of the other important points that is is frequently made is that whilst the uh, amount of retail money, and when we say retail money, we mean sort of mutual funds, daily liquidity funds. So mutual funds where investors can pull out their money or put their money in every single day. That that investor community has grown in leveraged loans. It's still only about 15% of the market. Overwhelmingly, the largest investor group is uh, collateralized loan obligations or CLOs. These, without going into too much detail, are a sort of permanent vehicle that buys loans and then slices it up uh, and allows investors to invest at different levels of risk and getting rewarded commensurate to how much risk they decide to take on. Uh, And the rest of the money tends to be in sort of similar permanent lockup vehicles, but just not sliced and diced in that same way. As a result, a lot of the money that is in the loan market, a lot of the money that has been extended to these companies isn't going away anytime soon or isn't going to be withdrawn rapidly. So what can really hurt a market if it comes into stress is investors kind of running for the hills, pulling money out, and that forces fund managers to sell assets into a down market. That can really accelerate and intensify problems. That's unlikely to happen in a big way in leveraged loans. Certainly people are concerned about the mutual fund money and the retail money that is in the market for that exact reason. But, you know, 85% of the market is still held in much more long-term hands. And that was part of the issue that we saw in December. We saw a lots of retail money flow out of leveraged loans. It was to the tune of some $4 billion or something. Loan prices came down quite substantially. We saw deals that were supposed to come to market either get pulled or we saw deals come out with you know, much less generous pricing terms. Meaning that banks have started to have, at least in December, started to have some trouble selling these loans. And as you say, in some cases, they weren't actually even sold at the price that the banks had anticipated. Right. And so with all this volatility, there was a big question of this was if this was just, you know, year end concerns and a lack of liquidity or if this indicated something much more worrisome about the leveraged loan market. And so the institutional investors that we spoke to said the outflows in December were a positive for the market for institutional investors because it meant that retail in the the supposed weak hands or these the less committed money was exiting the market. So you had institutional investors actually buying in December and early January as opposed to, you know, falling retail out the door. Right. Like Joe was saying, that that longer term money held by CLOs or by investors who want to stay in leveraged loans, they did in fact stay. Joe, I have one last question. One of the reasons the leveraged loan market is getting attention now is because of what some regulators are are, are saying they're worried about, this potential for risk, whether that's systemic or it's going to have knock-on effects. But my question is, so even if more attention does get paid to the way leveraged loans work, and if somehow some of that risk can be mitigated, are lawyers and bankers not just going to continue to find ways to construct new transactions to make new products for investors to put their money in that are potentially just as risky? Yeah, I mean, there's that old adage that uh, regulators always solve for the previous financial crisis, not the next one, right? We don't know what people are doing that will 
cause something unexpectedly terrible uh, in order to guard against it at the moment. It's it's a philosophical challenge. However, you know, if we have learned something from the previous financial crisis, it's that, I mean, there were many possible takeaways from the last financial crisis around banks funding themselves incorrectly, banks holding instruments that they probably shouldn't have been holding on to, banks originating instruments that they probably shouldn't have been originating. What we have now is a system where even if banks are still helping to originate some of this stuff, they're not holding on to it. And as a result, they're not holding on to it. They're not having to fund holding on to these loans as well. And as a result, banks' funding picture and their ability to stay afloat during periods of stress is much better. Whether that applies in equal measure to asset managers, hedge funds, and some of the other people in the market, private equity funds as well, it's not so clear. But you know, their job is investment. Their, their job is to make bets on what they think will be a successful investment for their clients. And if they get that wrong, it's kind of what they're paid to do. Joe, Colby, thank you. The reporting from Colby and Joe is part of a bigger FT series called The Debt Machine, and it's looking at the ways in which lenders outside of the conventional banking system are helping companies get further into debt, and what the consequences of that might be. You can find it at ft.com forward slash debt machine. And if you're not already an FT subscriber and would like to become one, you can go to ft.com forward slash offer to check out our latest subscription offer. And if you have something to say about this week's show or about a story that we should cover in a future episode, you can email us at behindthemoney@ft.com. Thanks to Jennifer Siegel and to Eric Krupke for help producing this episode. We'll be back next week. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.